Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reverb. My name is Calvin Pollock. Alex Helberg is off this week, but I'm so excited to be joined by an old friend of the show, Jim Brown. Jim, welcome back to Reverb. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an old veteran now. Yeah, Jim Brown is someone who has been on the show in the past um, in episodes a little bit more focused on his research. Uh, Jim is an associate professor of English and director of the Digital Studies Center at Rutgers Camden. So in the past, when Jim's been on, we've talked about everything from his research into digital rhetoric, uh, his book, Ethical Programs. We have a slightly different topic to cover this time because, you know, for those who aren't aware, back in April, Rutgers faculty went on strike, had a historic strike over, you know, grievances related to working conditions and pay. And here on Reverb, we've done several episodes in the past on academic labor. So this is an issue that we're very interested in. We wanted to bring Jim on to talk about his experiences with this recent strike. And so Jim, just to start today, in addition to those titles that I mentioned earlier, you also recently completed a term as president of the Camden chapter of Rutgers AAUP, American Association of University Professors. And so I wondered if you could just, for context, tell our listeners how long you've been a member of that union and what did serving as chapter president entail? Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm excited to talk about this um, because we, you know, we accomplished a lot in it. And uh, it's always exciting to sort of walk everyone through kind of how long it took to get to where we were at that strike in April. So I've been a member of the union since I got here to Rutgers in 2014. Um, I'm, you know, I signed up right away. I'm at previous institution, I, institutions. I was a member of the union as well. I was never active in my union prior to coming to Rutgers. So I was at um, UW-Madison before this, which isn't unionized, isn't um, allowed to be. That's a whole other story. <laughs> uh, and then before that, Wayne State, where I was in a union, but never really active. But I got here and um, I learned after a year or two that the union here was, well, I mean, without getting too deep into the weeds, you know, in 2016, the um, Trump DACA stuff was happening and our union started to organize events around that in support of student DACA students. And that's when I realized our union was doing things that I didn't realize it was doing, that it was a union that I might be more interested in, like getting involved with and not just being a member, started asking around, hey, where what's happening in Camden? Like who's organizing stuff in Camden? And uh, when you ask those questions, you become, a, you know, the, the staff of the union are like, aha, I have found someone. So uh, that's when I became more active, became began organizing on the kind of department level and then eventually the campus level. And then after about two or two years or so of that, maybe a little more, um, some folks in leadership asked if I would be interested in running to be chapter president. So the way Rutgers faculty union works is the union covers all faculty across all campuses at Rutgers. So New Brunswick, Camden, and Newark. There's a president and vice president of the entire union. Um, right now, actually, we're about to have elections, but right now, the president is Becky Given. Uh, vice president is Todd Wolfson. Todd has done a number, a lot of organizing at the national level with higher ed, with an organization called Higher Ed Labor United. And, and then each chapter, each campus chapter has a leadership structure. So I was president of that Camden chapter. So 
So I've been doing that for the last few years. Um, and then this past year, I was part of the bargaining team as well. So they asked me to be on the bargaining team. Uh, I have told folks in Camden that I uh, would never recommend in the future the, pre the chapter president also being on the bargaining team. That was quite a lot to carry. But that's sort of my basic trajectory in the union and kind of how I got to how it got to the point where, you know, around this time last year, I was at the bargaining table and sort of helping to build uh, uh, or, or present proposals that we had, we had been building for a few months. That's what was happening about a, a year ago right now. That's great. And just for people who don't aren't familiar, like on a day to day basis, what does the president of a chapter of a union do? Yeah, that likely differs campus to campus, chapter to chapter. Right. Um, for me, it was I'm the kind of central person that everyone on the campus comes to with questions about contract, about grievances, um, anything from like my paychecks wrong to um i i didn't get tenure and i i want to file a grievance to i mean it's just any number of things in camden especially over the last few years it's been a lot about pay equity so in our last contract prior to this one we won a pay equity process which which was largely um, focused on getting camden faculty to be more equitably paid on average we're paid 30 percent less than our colleagues in new brunswick but we are held to the same tenure standards so that's been a big focus in Camden. So I get a lot of questions about that, um, you know, holding meetings at the chapter level and then doing a lot of meetings at the at the union level, too. So as chapter president, you're also a member of the executive council, which is the sort of governing body of the, the entire union. That's about I want to say there's about 50 people on that body meets at least once a month. Once the contract got going, it was even more than that. And you're on committees for things like organizing. I was on a budget committee kind of approving expenditures. A number of committees you're on as president are because because you're president, so you're automatically on committees. Um, uh, so so it's like a ton of meetings and fielding a lot of emails from your colleagues like, hey, I don't know how to deal with this or my grad student is not getting the right level of funding, blah, 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 blah those sorts of things. And, and I should say the other interesting thing about the Rutgers Union, which is super unique, is that the grad workers are in the same union as us and in the same contract as us. So what that means is we're able to bargain at the table next to them. And it's why, I mean, going into this contract, they were more like, well, they were more well-paid than the sort of typical grad worker, TAGA. Um, but they still weren't making a living wage, which is now, you know, something we've we've made strides toward in this more recent contract. But that's another thing to just keep in mind during this conversation is it's a unique union in that regard. But yeah, that's the day to day. It's like a ton yeah. of email and a ton of of committee meetings. Right. And so, you know, I, I think that's a good piece of context for what I want to ask you about next, because I think that for those of us on the outside, you know, not part of Rutgers, this strike was really exciting and was really kind of felt like an eruption, like almost out of nowhere. But for you on the inside, uh, being the chapter president, you surely knew, you know, the broader context that this this strike came out of. So can you tell us just a little bit about the events leading up to that April strike and, and what made it necessary to go out on strike? Yeah, I actually kind of love hearing that, that like it sort of burst onto the scene. I mean, I know it got lots of coverage and talking to friends nationally, hearing from people 
uh, during and uh, after the strike. So I, I I was aware that that was the sort of perception. And that's not surprising because people are just not privy to what's happening. But I think you probably, you know, my colleague Donna Murch has done a number of interviews about this. And I just want to say that, um, first of all, that Donna is an amazing person, organizer and scholar, and uh, and people should look up her work on the Black Panthers and, and other stuff. But um, what she has said is you really have to go back to the pandemic to understand the strike. And I think that's right, because the in the midst of the pandemic, our union worked with a number of other unions at Rutgers, staff unions, uh, other worker unions to build what is now called the coalition of Rutgers unions. So there's tons of different workers at Rutgers that have that are in multiple different unions. Organizing those workers is really complicated because we're all sort of uh, sort of siloed and management likes those silos. They like to kind of keep everyone separate. It's really bad for them if you start to organize together. But during the pandemic, you know, layoffs started to happen almost instantaneously of dining hall workers, of adjunct faculty. And the faculty, the full-time faculty union and grad worker union at Rutgers is massively powerful. At the time was the most organized union, still is the most organized union on campus, um, especially due to the work of the last, say, eight years or so, the last two sort of um, contracts. The, 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 pre, the president who was in place when I started getting active in the union was Deepa Kumar, who was like, I would say, really started this all getting the union to think in uh, toward more sort of issues of social justice and beyond just sort of pay issues for full-time faculty. But so the, so the pandemic hits and these layoffs hit and the faculty union leadership decides, look, we have the most leverage. We have the most power. We should work to, to somehow support and protect these workers who are less organized, who make less money, who are more precarious, who don't, of course, have tenure uh, protections. And we so we started to work in that regard. And we we proposed to the administration uh, a work share program, which is essentially a, a, a partial furlough program that would mean that we would take partial furloughs in exchange for them agreeing to not lay off workers. They rejected that plan and then laid off workers. And then six months later, roughly or so, they did agree to that plan. And we were able to at least save some, some jobs in that regard. So you had full-time, full professors, distinguished professors, pre-tenure professors, non-tenure track professors taking a partial furlough. It's called a work share program because the way it worked was we were, we were able to apply for unemployment to make up for that furlough. Um, but that, of course, means that Rutgers saves money. And our our position was, we'll do that. We'll do that work to save Rutgers that money if that if those resources are used to save other people's jobs. So we did that. We were successful. It was I, I was amazed by it because I expected to get inundated with those emails I mentioned earlier from like full-time faculty that say, like, why do I have to do this? This is too complicated. Why am I dealing? Why am I on the phone with New Jersey unemployment? And you know, we did, we heard some of that, but by and large, people supported it. And it was a really important moment to see what we were capable of and what the sort of most privileged, best off workers at Rutgers were willing to do. How long did that work share yeah, agreement last? last? And, and when what, was that in 2020? Or I want to say it was 2020. Mm -hmm. And the actual work share was maybe for, gosh, maybe a six week sort of period, saved millions and millions of dollars for the university. Because uh, we were drawing on like, Co like pandemic funds that were made available to do just this. Right. And, um, you know, there were other parts of this 
agreement and this bargaining with the, the administration too, because they had there was a there's a clause in our contract that allows them to declare a fiscal emergency and then take away our raises. They had done that. We bargained to get some of those raises back, not all of them. So there was there were pieces of this as well. The pieces of this agreement as well were like about getting some of those raises back. But you know, the, the long and short of it was that level of organization is very difficult to re, to to achieve to to organize across multiple unions to organize within a faculty union that rep, that you know represents 9000 workers across multiple campuses um and that are sort of by you know i mean the history of academic workers is that they are well off like class wise they are and they are not they just don't tend to sort of care that much about what's happening outside their sort of very specific sphere and so that was the beginning of what you could like that those are the early rumblings of what happened in April of this year, I would say. So fast forward a little bit to our contract is uh, coming up last year this time. Um, you know, end of June, beginning of July is when the fiscal year turns over. That's when we were out, July 1st, we were out of a contract. And in January, 2023, we start putting proposals together for a new contract. So we are building toward a contract fight. We know it's gonna be a fight. Um, we are building proposals, talking to members, getting a lot, as many people involved in those proposals. That's everything from pay raises to job security for adjuncts to job security for non-tenure track faculty. Uh, one of the things we want in the contract eventually was presumptive renewal of those contracts, which basically means people who are non-tenure track faculty can't be non-renewed for any old reason. Essentially, you have to, to, to not get renewal, your, your program has to be going away at this point. It's about the closest thing you can get to tenure. Huge win in that contract. But that all, you know, those proposals are being put together. And then summer hits and we're asking for bargaining dates. It's time to bargain a contract. The, the contract is is coming up and then eventually it is up. And the response from management is, is a sort of typical response from management, which is to slow play everything, to to eventually give us a couple hours a week to talk about these things. And that's about it. Um, all that's happening on Zoom because we're still doing as much stuff remotely as possible. COVID is not, is sort of still top of mind for everyone. We're pushing hard for as much open bargaining as we can get, as much sort of people outside the bargaining team proper attending those sessions on Zoom. Um, that's a major organizing tool that people are realizing is really, really important. It's been the case in uh, I think the new school made big use of um, of open bargaining. I think they did the same thing in California and the strike there. But that's a major organizing tool because if your members can see what management does at the table, they get really, really angry and they want to get more involved. Management knows that that's one of the reasons we want to do open bargaining, so they fight it. So that's what's happening in about a year ago right now, right? And that sort of slow playing continues into the fall. But I mean, really, the contract campaign knew we, we made clear to people from the moment we were building proposals that we thought a strike was going to be likely. And we talked about that early on. Right. We said we need to be ready. And the only way we're going to get a good contract is if we are strike ready. That's the only we need a credible strike threat so that they will actually listen to us. And we built and built and organized and organized. And we said the word strike often. So four years ago in the last contract. We organized toward a strike as well. We had a strike vote, we, a strike authorization vote. Our members authorized a strike, but we were not organized in the same way we were this year. And when we talked about a strike, we were more careful with members. People were very afraid of a strike. COVID changed a lot of things. The changing labor environment changed a lot of things, but we did not have to be as careful. 
talking strike this time around. So we talked about it a lot. We organized a lot. We had strike schools, we called them on Zoom, where people could come learn about what it means to go on strike, what what would happen in a strike, you know, how to get more involved. All of that was happening summer, fall into the new year. And then, you know, after the like January hits and we kind of knew it was like time, the timing of an academic strike, academic worker strike is really weird, right? Because when the academic year ends, your leverage ends, your people go away. Um, also, when you get toward the end of the year, you're getting close to graduation. You have to work with students. Think about how you're going to work with students. Are they going to be worried about not graduating? So you have a window, a very specific window that's like, you know, anything past something like April, you're bumping up against the end of the academic year. And we knew that. So it wasn't um, it wasn't a surprise to anyone that March or April was going to be when it happened, if it happened. So that's the kind of longer story of like how we got to where we got in April. It was years, in some ways, years of organizing and then a very, very intense year of organizing. And was there like a event or moment in the negotiation where you said, now we do it, you know, in that second week of April or whenever that was that it officially yeah, started? I'll a lot of folks have asked that actually a number of journalists were, were always asking that question like why now why now and it's actually that's a very difficult question to answer because there really wasn't there was that timing issue you know and that timing was not a secret like we weren't coming out and saying on this date we will strike that's a, that would be a silly thing to say right but everybody kind of knew on the management side you have to think they're looking at the same calendar we are and as we got closer and closer to the date where you would assume where everyone had to be assuming, okay, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the next few weeks or a month. They became, so here's, here's a good answer to your question. As we got closer to that time, they became more recalcitrant. Like they were doing less. They were bargaining. They were taking longer at bargaining. They would caucus for hours at a time. And we didn't know what they were doing. They were, you know, coming back to the table with these like offers for adjunct pay that were ridiculous, but they were saying, this is kind of like, you know, th this is our last and best saying things like it was their last and best. And we were like, this is absurd. We've been talking to you for a year now about our goals for adjunct pay. And, you know, another thing to, uh, you know, this doesn't actually fit with this question, but it, sh it should also be said. The other weird structural thing that was happening at Rutgers was the adjunct faculty are in our union, but on a separate contract. And so um, they're AAUP, AFT, just like us, but they're actually a different bargaining unit. And so what that means is in the past, what that's meant is management bargains with us, the full-time faculty and grads, and then the adjuncts completely separate table. And we broke that structure this time around. One, we tried to, we had them sign cards to get added to our union. Uh, Rutgers continues to fight that. Um, we were able to get the medical faculty added to our union. That took years of organizing as well. So now they are part of the Rutgers AAUP AFT. Um, they were at the table as well. But, you know, we're sitting at the table with adjunct faculty in the same sessions, which is the first time that's ever happened. And um, so I just want to point that out, that like this sort of surprising solidarity that I talked about during the pandemic extended to adjuncts as well, where full time faculty were saying, look, if we go on strike, it's going to be for graduate worker pay and adjunct pay. Those are the people that have the least job security and make the least. And that's what we want. And I think management did not believe that they thought we were posturing they thought it was sort of virtue signaling they thought for sure once the rubber hit the road that like full-time faculty would would split from those groups and would not actually strike that didn't happen that that must have been their calculus they never said it but it had to have been but it didn't work so all of that is to say 
you know, if in as as February and March hit and they seem to not be moving really at all, um, you know, we were in this position where we had we planned for a credible strike threat, and here we are. As we got really, really close, the state started to hear this and sent mediators in. Uh, mediators in New Jersey can't impose any kind of binding, anything binding on the parties. They're basically just there to kind of help you work better. It didn't really change anything about the dynamic. So it became clear that like they weren't moving and we weren't moving, at least not in the ways that anybody expected. I mean, to be clear, you have to move in some ways have to move your proposals in some ways. If you stop moving, they can declare an impasse and you don't want that. Legally, that means basically everything stops and it goes to this fact-finding sort of legal process that you do not want. That means you won't have a contract for multiple years. But you know there just wasn't the kind of movement that anybody thought was serious. And so that's kind of when we were like, okay, we set this timeline. We have a basic sense of what we need to do. And the wheels went in motion. We had we had already done a strike authorization vote from the members. That means the members are saying to leadership, look, if you determine that you think we should call a strike, you're empowered to do so. The, le the leadership body did that and the vote happened. And then, you know, that Monday we were on strike. We had been talking to students about it for, for weeks and months at that point. So they were ready. And so one of the tools that the administration used uh, against your union was they prospectively sought a legal injunction against the strike and they walked this back a few days later. But what did you make of that tactic as, you know, as someone on the ground, what was the impact of, of that mm -hmm. tactic? So that was a big part of our organizing from the jump. And in fact, it was a part of our organizing four years ago in the previous contract too. We always knew that that was going to be a possibility because the sort of legal precedent for, for workers in the state of New Jersey is, you know, an employer can go get an injunction to essentially force you back to work. And we so we message that to members constantly, like, here's what's going to happen. We're going to if we go on strike, here's what's going to happen. The president of the university is going to get an injunction. So there were a bunch of things we did to sort of organize against that. One was, you know, a letter that went out from the president to President Holloway, uh, President Rutgers, from many of his colleagues nationally um, saying, do not do this. Um, this is like you're a you're a labor historian, Jonathan Holloway. Was this um, the letter that Ibram Kendi was on? Kendi was on. Judith Butler was on. Robert D, Robin D G Kelly was on. Uh, any huge name you could imagine in history in the U S and beyond probably was on that letter saying like, don't do this. Like rethink this. So that was part of you know there was that kind of stuff happening. We were talking to members about it. Here's what happens if we go to an injunction. It goes to court. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean we all have to go back to work the very next day. We have to figure out if they're how they're going to enforce an injunction. Like, are they going to say that every member of the union is in violation of a court order? Then what does that mean? Or do they go after leadership? And what does that mean for the leaders? Are they going to fine them, the union? Are they going to seek jail time? All those things were things we talked about. And but we did know that that was their main tool, and and he talked about it openly. This is what he would do um, if we went on strike. Um, and again, a labor historian, president of Rutgers University, like is 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 essentially breaking breaking a strike and breaking a union. So that we knew this was coming. Really interestingly, though, so we get close to the strike, and this is when the governor sort of shows shows up because he's Phil Murphy is a Democrat 
in a blue state and supposedly a very like labor friendly state. And he does not want the state university of, of New Jersey on strike on his watch. And so he kind of, he, um, one, he sort of tried to get, get us to, to sort of put the brakes on things on strike wise. When he saw that wasn't going to happen, he, um, he put pressure on Holloway not to file the injunction. Um, and he didn't. So we essentially had what we thought was at least a two day window. That was the way it was sort of pre presented, like for the next couple of days or, or, or as long as there's progress happening, I won't file an injunction. Um, but after a few days of like the strike went for five days and after two or three days, it felt like pretty unlikely that he was going to file that un until the very end when we had to kind of agree to a framework to a deal that we felt like we had had we not agreed to that framework i think then you might be talking about the injunction happening but that was their main tool um much has also been made of the fact that Rutgers has hired um anti-labor law firms and consulting firms to kind of uh and so that strategy is likely coming from those places as well it's a kind of national strategy amongst management and university presidents like whatever tools you have but we had done so much organizing with amongst ourselves with students talking like and and that that gets through to parents as well like this was not just I mean that's the thing I learned in the last three years is like these things take a lot of time and work it's exhausting <laughs> to do this kind of work and be ready for that kind of thing you can't just decide one day you're going to go on strike when you're going up against the behemoth of of Rutgers University yeah and so you know it's it's exhausting it's really hard it takes a long time but bottom line you won which is amazing right so i wondered if you could just tell us about the nature of what you won and how the union's feeling about the you know the gains in the new contract the top line wins are you know 48 percent raises for adjunct faculty 33 percent raises for uh graduate workers those are over the course of the contract over the four years of the contract so uh, by the end of this contract, adjunct faculty would be making something close to, I think, $9,000 per course, which is like could, uh, potentially three times more than other schools in, in the region. Uh, by the end of the contract, graduate workers will be making $40,000 a year. And again, I, I do think it's crucial to see that as linked to this, to this, the structure of our union, that the grad workers are in the same bargaining unit, in the same contract as us. Uh, beyond that, you're looking at you know, the potential for adjunct faculty to have one and two year appointments, sometimes even more depending on seniority. So like right now, it doesn't matter how long you've been teaching at Rutgers and we have adjunct faculty who have been here for decades who still reapply for their job every semester. Those folks now have the possibility depending based on how many semesters they've been at Rutgers to get things like a year or two year appointment. Okay, you're gonna be here for two years and you're gonna get X number of classes over those two years. That's never happened for our adjunct faculty. I mentioned earlier, non-tenure track faculty have presumptively renewable contracts. It's as kind of really as close to tenure as you can get without getting it. We gained a number of other things that are like minor to others, but were massive wins for us based on like organizing efforts. So protections against caste discrimination in the contract, which was like a huge organizing effort and went was up against kind of Hindu nationalist forces inside the state of New Jersey that that was not something that just happened 
easily. That took years of organizing and members getting behind it. I think the job security wins were the sort of core. Oh, I guess the one other thing I would say is, you know, there's a large number of graduates, graduate workers at Rutgers who are not TAs or GAs. They're on like a fellowship, like an internal fellowship. And if they're on an internal fellowship, they're not in our contract. And uh, the argument we made throughout was those people are essentially doing the same work, whether they're a fellow or a TA. The work doesn't actually change. The only thing that's changing is like their title and the amount of money they're making. And what happens when they go into fellowship is they move off the good health insurance onto something less good, and but they're still doing the same work. And we made that argument over and over that they should be part of the bargaining unit. So we won a process to add those fellows to our union, which I think was a massive, what was one of the really big things we bargained for when we were at the governor's office bargaining for a week. The week of the strike, the bargaining team, we were at Phil Murphy's office in a like in a conference room, a very small conference room, um, working on things like that that were really hangups on uh, and things that we couldn't get uh, pushed through. Rutgers in our contract has to kind of give us X number of course releases for the for union work, right? So if you're a president, like as Camden chapter president, I get a course release. Um, if you're president of the entire union, you get even more, I think you maybe get two course releases. I forget how that works, but for years they've given those course releases. They're negotiated in the contract. This, in this contract for the first time, Rutgers is paying for a portion of that, those credits essentially. So we get X number of like credits to spend for union leadership. Rutgers is now paying for part of that, part of those, which is like, like another huge win. And um, where was the money for those coming from before? Um, we, the union's paying essentially. The union. like okay. the union's paying like uh the equivalent of like uh an adjunct s- slot right? To, right to take a full-time faculty member sort of away from that so i mean those are those are like minor things but they are things you win one there are things you win over time over years this is another thing i've learned is like a contract builds to the next contract you, you sort of poke away at something and then in the next contract you're able you, you've opened the door to something else so a good example is in this contract you know in the last contract I, I mentioned earlier we won some equity salary equity provisions essentially like a process by which someone could apply to say i do the same work as this person here here's my cv here's their cv they're at new brunswick i'm in camden they make 30 percent more than me fix that mm-hmm. uh administration fought that i mean they they agreed to it in the last contract they dragged their feet on the process for years. We ended up having to sue them and win a settlement in that lawsuit to make them live up to that agreement. But what happened was that law, what came out of that lawsuit agreement is now in our contract. So you had, so the building blocks are, is really important to see those building blocks. One, you win a salary equity process in a contract. They drag their feet and they don't enforce it. Then you have to find a bunch of faculty members who are willing to sue the university, you sue them, right? Then you win that lawsuit, you get that language out of the lawsuit. Then you take that language and you build it into your next contract and you bargain that language. You say, let's make it even better. So we have, they use like a algorithm to determine these salary equity numbers. And we couldn't get them to not use that algorithm, but we were able to get transparency on that algorithm. So we're able to say essentially, okay, you use this regression equation to determine how much money I should make in the salary process. I need to know exactly how that regression equation works. So we were able to win things like that. So, you know, that's what's what we fought a year for on top of like little changes to the grievance processes and like what kinds of grievances you could file for based on what kinds of things were happening. Those are all like really like mind numbing details, but like there's a ton of those wins in there as well. Yeah. 
it's it's amazing stuff and i appreciate you even going over some of the things that sound more obscure or minor because like as you brought up the last one about algorithmic transparency about that the algorithm that they use to determine salaries I think that gets at where I wanted to take us next, which is thinking about the broader significance of this. So one of the things you mentioned, Rutgers history professor Donna Murch, um, she's been giving a lot of great interviews and, and having conversations about the broader significance of this strike and, and these victories. One of the things that she has talked about is you know, what we could call in a slightly highfalutin terminology, the neoliberal academy or the neoliberal university. And we've talked about neoliberalism on a number of episodes of this show before. I think that something like, you know, an arcane salary determination algorithm, that's a really interesting example of like, you know, the neoliberal academy or neoliberal institutions. And I think particularly in a state like New Jersey, a public, I mean, the fact that a public university has all of these neoliberal aspects, I think really crystallizes the problem of neoliberal mm -hmm. academic structures. And I also think about things like the ways that the university invests in, you know, incredibly harmful capitalist investments, the ways that universities like Rutgers and, you know, a ton of other public universities throughout the U.S. Uh, contribute to gentrification um, and contribute to housing crises, not only for their own workers and students, but for people in the broader communities that they're part of. So where do you see this in terms of framing the problem that your strike was reacting to or the set of related interrelated problems that your strike was reacting to where do you see a neoliberal neoliberalism as part of that i mean in so many ways like too many ways to possibly like wrap our heads around but i'll just say a couple like the last thing you mentioned about like housing inequities and how in, injustice you know one of the other things we pushed for in this contract was a series of proposals or uh that fall under the heading bargaining for the common good, which is a sort of national move to use the contract table, like, like the bargaining table to push things that um, management would say are outside the purview of the contract. So we have been organizing with community members in Brunswick, Newark and Camden for, for essentially at this point years to get to a point where we could come to the table and say, look, Rutgers, you're the, especially in New Brunswick, like you're the largest landlord. If you froze rent for X number of years, here is the sort of impact you'd have on the surrounding community, like because everyone would have to essentially follow your your lead and pricing would follow. Right. N not to mention the fact that like, on you know, you as a university like, exploit those people in all these different ways. So like you, you owe these people this. We pushed for a under that same banner of bargaining for the common good, a, a fund that would help sort of be sort of negotiated between the union community groups and the university that would help. Uh, help fund those in the community who didn't get the benefit of all of those COVID relief programs. So um, those are all things that they don't want to bargain because they want to keep everything sort of very narrowly focused on dollars and cents, bottom lines. Um, they want to keep everything compartmentalized. If I had to say one strategy that you're up against in combating the neoliberal university, right? It is compartmentalization and siloization, right? Bargaining units separate groups of people separate, 
break solidarity by separating people and essentially playing them against one another. The reason the coalition of Rutgers unions is important is that in the past, what Rutgers would do is find the weakest union, pick them off, bargain a contract with X percentages in years one through four, and then say to all the other unions, this is the precedent that we have now set with this union. This is what you get. Here are your percentages each year. And that pattern has to be broken, which is why a bunch of other unions waited, were waiting, like looking to us, the union with the most power to essentially set that precedent. What are those, what are those annual numbers in those four years that then we can go say, Hey, AAUP, AFT got these numbers. That's where we expect to start. So that kind of cross union collaboration and solidarity is crucial. And it's again, up against a structure that does not want it to happen. So that sort of compartmentalization. And I should say, like, I've been thinking about this a lot. This sort of federated structure is something I've been writing about and researching now for a, for a little while. And I watched it being part of these bargaining sessions, being part of this union organizing the last few years has really changed the way I think about federation and federated structures altogether and how, how capitalism looks to break federated structures that in every way possible looks to kind of create at not just atomized individuals, but atomized groups, right? So because an atomized group is identifiable, you can box it in. This happens in labor organizing in, in really uh, infuriating ways. So like the structure that kind of keeps unions separate by saying, for instance, there's no such thing as a solidarity strike in the US. If if you work alongside another, if you're a union, you know, if you're in union A and you work alongside another set of workers who are in union B and union B goes on strike, union A is legally not allowed to strike with that with union B, right? It's just legally, the, the law is set up to not allow you to work together, right? That's a kind of legal restriction against federation. And that's just one example of the kinds of things that happen that make you then as a union hyper, it, it sort of trains you to be hyper-focused on what your you need, what your members want, what your members need. That's like sort of antithetical to solidarity, right? That's the, what I just described earlier, where the full-time faculty said, we're in a separate union from the adjuncts. However, this is what we need adjuncts to get for this to be a successful contract for all of us. That's a tricky thing to do in a world where US labor law and the neoliberal institutions, such as the neoliberal uh, university, don't want that to happen and have the law on their side, have everything on their side. So organizing against that is requires so much more work to break those structures. I think that's the sort of, if there's a key, one big takeaway, it is that compartmentalization, those forces of compartmentalization that then you have to figure out ways around and through with really kind of savvy strategy and tactics. Yeah. And, and I did want to give you a chance to talk about what some of those strategies were internally for forging solidarity across such a complex set of workforces because you had people at these many different levels. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that one of the one of the strategies you used was to flip it where basically, you know, the workforce that has the most privilege is taking the most of the heat and and is kind of like setting the precedent for the rest of the workforces, but were there any other ways that you found effective to like bring all of these different kinds of workers together and avoid infighting? Yeah. I mean, the key is, you know, when leadership of the full-time unit meets, there are often 
members of the part-time of the adjunct faculty union there as well. So uh, and organizing teams are always cross uh, job category sort of mixed. So big organizing teams are grad workers, full-time, tenure track, non-tenure track, adjunct. We also represent a group of EOF counselors uh, that are part of our union too, a small group, but still part of our union. Like these, and and we've I've only mentioned briefly the medical faculty, but like folding them into our union was like a massive win, but also created all sorts of issues because their contract is completely different from ours. The way they're compensated is completely different. They they're sort of compensated based on you know how productive they are in terms of like how many patients they see and those sorts of things, right? Their their um their compensation article and their contract is like really complicated and completely different from what we see. So having to be, but being in sessions where I was starting to learn about some of those complexities being, so I'm on the bargaining team, which means I'm in those sessions hearing the concerns of medical faculty, whether it's members, members of the staff, people on the bargaining team, people just coming into sessions to share stories and learning about the working conditions of those folks is core to like building that solidarity. So that's one thing is just sort of mixing members as much as possible in organizing efforts in meetings, frankly, and something that's been nearly impossible over the last three years in social settings is like crucial, something we have missed out on in like important ways. But, you know, there's, it's really difficult to organize people when you can't get together physically. Um, and so I would say some of the fractures in the union that have, have emerged even in the, in the wake of these wins and there are, there are fractures like there are, you know, uh, Donna uh, Merch, who we mentioned earlier, is, is actually like working on writing a piece about this that I talked to her about. But like everybody on the outside sees this as like this huge win and this like group of like elated people. But on the inside, it doesn't feel that way. On the inside, it feels like we're all sort of recovering from like battle. And those battles are not only external some of them are internal so it's really really hard to articulate the complexities of how solidarity works a book that i will recommend is a book that i like cite in this thing I'm, i told you i'm writing is by scholar his last name is duford d-u-f-o-r-d solidarity and conflict is the name of the book and it's about how solidarity organizations operate and like how they manage that those dynamics or fail to um, it's a really, really, really great explanation of those forces. But I will say one other thing, which is like, it just, it takes so much time. So the reason four years ago, there wasn't very good organizing between the full-time and the adjunct faculty. And by the way, like four years ago, the story on that, on like the, the story that came out of the contract fight four years ago was that the, the adjunct fa faculty felt like they were basically abandoned by the full-time faculty. The, the the deeper story there is actually that and the, the adjunct faculty, faculty who now are in leadership will tell you that this is the case. They weren't organized as as well as the full time unit was. And so there wasn't an alignment. There wasn't good conversation happening like they, we weren't organizing together. All of that changed in this contract. Like for the last four years, we've been organizing together when we organize actions or events. It's with that union. So when we're at the table, we're not like we're everyone's on the same page everyone's been put putting these proposals together together and understanding like we're not this is a one big negotiation and i should say th the biggest win in the contract is that we negotiated together medical faculty adjuncts eof counselors grad workers full-time 
part-time, like uh, non-tenure track, tenure track, all at the same bargaining table. Management hated it. They hated it. They hated it so much. When the when the mediators came in, the first thing they would say is like, look, how come like this the reason this is taking so long is the inefficiency of this big mess of a of a of a negotiation with all these people at the table. And our response was like, we turn their proposals around in hours. They bring us something, we we give them a counter in hours. They take days. So the inefficiency is not on our side. The inefficiency is clearly on uh, they have some inefficiencies. They're running everything through a single office that wants things to be slow. So that's the biggest win. And it's not the sexiest win. It doesn't like, it's not the thing that everyone thinks about. Those big numbers, 48%, 33%, super proud of those numbers. They're amazing, I think. But they're like structurally what was what was achieved here was like much bigger than that. And the precedent is is much bigger. So obviously building that kind of solidarity across job categories, you know, across campuses, all of this stuff, this is a really complex and and I think theoretically interesting rhetorical task. And so I wanted to give you a chance to just talk about how your training in rhetoric, how your teaching relates to this side of the work. Because I think that people might be inclined to totally separate those that like mm -hmm. rhetoric is something that's what you love. That's something you, you do. And, and, you know, and this labor stuff is something you feel like you have to do, you know, for your for your own material well-being for the well-being of, of people you're working with but how do you see them as as interlinked yeah two thoughts on that one is how my training and rhetoric informed what happened at the bargaining table and in the strike and then the other is in the other direction how the being involved in labor has transformed the kinds of research questions i am now asking so the first one is I would be continually amazed at how the bargaining team, and by that I mean like our lawyers, the people who study labor relations and are and lead our union. So like those people are at the table and they are, and they also study this stuff. So, but you know, there's me, the English professor, like learning from them. Like, is this normal? Is this how this stuff normally goes? But I would be continually amazed at how much they relied on persuasion to to sort of transmit proposals to management. What I mean by that is like logic, argumentation, like here are the numbers, here are what our peer institutions do, here's why you're not living up to like your responsibility to the community. Like, like, and I'm sitting there thinking like, why are they doing this? Like, these people are not persuadable. <laughs> like, this is not a persuasive situation. This is not a situation of persuasion. It is a, and I kept thinking like, I was just continually shocked in the kind of faith in logic and argumentation that people would have. Um, so that's, the, but, but then what I realized was when you have no power, and I think that our union and unions in general are so accustomed to not having power, all you have is persuasion, right? Because you don't have force, because you don't have, if you don't have a credible strike threat, all you can try to do is persuade. But once you have power, it, things shift a little bit. Yeah, you you continue to make those arguments. You have to, and you have to make them the, as competently as possible, and you have to draw on evidence. But what wins at the table, what wins is, is not what happens at the table. What wins is what happens in the street, is people singing, hey, Holloway, right?
people like um, shutting down a university is empty parking lots and no classes. That's what was happening. And I was amazed both at myself, at my lack of faith in rhetoric in those moments, like, what are we doing here? Why are we trying to persuade these people? They're not going to be persuaded. So, and the people who I was working with, their faith in like argumentation and rhetoric. So I, I want to say that first. And, but I do still think, I mean, I, the rhetoricians who listen to this aren't going to love hearing this, but I do, do not think that arguments won this contract. I just don't. Unless, I mean, not arguments in the way that we think of them, right? Material arguments, like embodied argument, like being in the way. We could talk about that as rhetoric, of course. But logical argumentation did not win the day, force won the day. So that's the first thing I want to say. The other thing I want to say is like, I've been interested in things like federated social media for a number of years, things like Mastodon and other sort of places where people are organizing online in different structures, not in corporate social media spaces, um, organizing as groups first, and then figuring out how those groups connect to other groups. Whereas typically when we get online and we and we think we're organizing with a group we organize as individuals, right? We figure out on, on our own who to follow or who to link up with or who to friend. And federated social media changes that equation in a lot of ways. And um, so I've always been interested in federated social media and I had been writing something for years about it and couldn't figure out, figure my way into it. But labor organizing changed everything about that because now I understand federation in a completely different way and how how federation happens, how it needs to be constantly practiced and achieved. Um, it's not something that you just sort of set up. You have to kind of work at it. How boundaries between communities have to be constantly negotiated and, and how our confusion about something like federated social media online is actually directly linked to the, the breakage of unions over the last decades in the, in the US that like, we don't understand solidarity and federation, not just because of the way our like digital networks are built, but because we have lost, we've we have atrophied organizing muscles. Like we do not understand solidarity and federation because uh, neoliberalism and capitalism have have actively broken those practices. And so that's the way it worked back the other way. Is like seeing all this up close and personal has changed the way I think about federation. Um, and that's part of the kind of project I'm working on now. So it's, it, it did work in both directions. Um, in, in terms of my own training as a rhetorician, I will say like, I was, <laughs> it was slightly depressing because I kept looking around thinking like, I'm the person who's supposed to believe in rhetoric, but these people d believe in it way more than I do. Right. Yeah. And I mean that, you know, that that's the kind of agonistic rhetoric. We could talk about all, all kinds of, I'm sure there was a ton of internal epideictic rhetoric mm -hmm. going on kind of like maintaining the the solidarity and values of of your union right and so mm -hmm. maybe there was there was internal uh rhetorical discourse as well but um this is all super helpful and and awesome to to learn about jim anything that you want to add as we close out here um or anything you want to plug anything our, our listeners can support um, well, I would say one thing, you, you know, I, we would love support for the beloved community fund that we're helping to build with those community groups I mentioned. Um, and I can share information about how people can can contribute to that. You know, that was something that we we thought we won at the table was like the, the president of the university had put money on the table to support that fund, like a matching fund with the union that came off the table when Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, proposed his own way of solving that problem, which mm. we have said is 
frankly ridiculous. Rutgers should not have like pulled its own money off the table just because Governor Murphy put his money out there. So I can share ways for people to contribute to that, but that's a way for that the union is trying to build connections with local organizations. Um, I don't have anything to plug. I've spent too much time labor organizing to publish anything. Uh, but you know, I, like I said, the, the Donna merch piece that's going to be coming out is going to be, I think it's going to be called winning is hard. And actually that is the thing I would say that people should take away, like be inspired by Rutgers, but recognize that it, it was, a it continues to be difficult. Right. Well, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, the new MLB rules, but we'll have to save that for uh, another time when we can do a <laughs> separate episode on the rhetoric of baseball. It's a whole episode. Yeah, Come yeah. In. Ethical programs and and baseball, but uh, but thank you so much, Jim Brown. This is super awesome to catch up with you and keep up the good work. I hope that you find some space and time to to do that writing this summer. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. All right, man. Talk to you soon. Talk Bye. to you. Our show today was produced and edited by Calvin Pollock and Alex Helberg. Reverb's co-producers are Sophie Wadzak, Ben Williams, and Olivia Burnett. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Android, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you enjoyed this episode, write a review, share it with a colleague or a friend. We appreciate all of your support.